Well, I encourage you to look in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. As we open there to the 13th chapter, we begin the second main portion of this book. The first portion was chapters 1 through 12. It's called Jesus' Public Ministry. In his public ministry, in those first 12 chapters, he presents himself to the nation as their promised Messiah. But of course, as you know, they rejected him as their Messiah. So thus, that begins the second major movement in the book, which is chapters 13 through uh, 17. And there it's his private ministry, his personal ministry, if you please, to his beloved disciples. And uh, this major transition from his open public ministry to his private ministry to his disciples is clearly brought out in chapter 12 and verses uh, 36 and 37, where we read these words, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And that ended the first movement of the Gospel of John, his public ministry. They had seen it, heard him, rejected him, and therefore he hid himself. And now he would give himself to his beloved disciples. This uh, is seen, this, these two major movements, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. For example, that first movement that talks about his public ministry and the rejection of him, John writes in chapter 1, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But then he introduces you in the first chapter right after that to his private ministry. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Chapter 13 through 17 could all be described by this morning's message title, God's Love for You on Display. But this morning we're going to only be looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 13 that begins this second major movement of the Gospel of John, Jesus' private ministry to his disciples, for he is preparing them. He so loves them, and he's about to depart, and he's preparing them, and by the way, you as well, and me as well, for that departure. So we begin with our first major point in our outline, and I encourage you to use it. It's found in your bulletin there. And the first major point in the bulletin, or in your outline, is this. God states the depth of his love for you. God states the depth. This is God. He states the depth of his love for you and for me. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. God states the depth of his love for you. First, I want you to notice the great impact this hour made on his son. I want you to notice the great impact that this hour had on his son. It says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. You know, we're given the very day. This was Thursday evening. 
the day before the Passover feast, which would begin Friday morning. It was the 14th of Nisan, the day before the Passover. It was Thursday evening. Jesus knew, listen, he knew that before that night was out, he would be betrayed, apprehended, and the trial would begin, and the next day he was going to go to the cross. He knew all of that. Brutally scourged, nailed to a cross. He knew that just in a few hours, all the sins of the whole world would be laid upon him. All God's fiery wrath would be poured out upon him, and he would be completely cut off from God. The one he had only known perfect communion with throughout all eternity past. This is what's on his heart. Think about how that must have weighed him down, knowing before that night was out, he would be apprehended in the next day, he would be crucified for the sins of the whole world. Who can comprehend the weight that he bore in that hour in that upper room as he fully knew all this, that he would be the Lamb of God, slain? who takes away the sin of the world. But notice what else verse 1 tells us. He knew he was very soon to leave his disciples and depart out of this world to the Father. That's what it says. First and foremost on his heart was to do the very will of his Father. You know that. That was the number one primary thing in his mind, to do his Father's will. That was number one. But secondly was his love for these disciples and for you and me as well. He was greatly concerned about them despite all that was going on and about to go on in his life. This is the scene out of which God states the depth of his love for you and me. But secondly, I want you to see the expression of Jesus' past and present love for you. I want you to see that. The expression of his past and present love for you. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now in these five chapters, 13 through 17, he pours out his heart trying to prepare his beloved disciples for what's about to happen and the fact that he's going to be leaving them. He's going to be back, ascending back up into heaven. And boy, it's promise after promise and encouragement after encouragement as he's preparing them for what is just about to come upon them. But at the end of this second major movement of John's gospel, chapter 17, We find Jesus praying to his Father for his disciples. Now listen to how deeply he loved them as well as you and me. He prays, and I'm I'm only going to read portions of this prayer, not all of it. He says, I ask on their Father's behalf. I ask on their behalf, I'm sorry. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those, that's you and me, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Look at the longing of his heart for you and me and these these disciples. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. That ended that prayer out there in the garden for you and me and these disciples. F.F. Bruce writes, God's wider love for the world is not displaced by this concentrated love of Jesus for his friends, but it is they who experience it in its fullness. Isn't that good? We get to experience that love in its fullness. But you know what? Satan does his very best to get you and me to doubt that depth of God's love for you, for me. Things go wrong and immediately we look to God who we know is all-knowing and all-sovereign and says He loves me with an everlasting love. Then why does He allow this to come into my life? I'm sure a lot of people in Umqua, there in Roseburg, are asking that question. And there's times when you and I as well ask that same question. Satan loves to do that and I want you to see the depth of God's love stated for you in that upper room, in His Son, through His Son. What does he say? Having Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It doesn't mean to the end when he laid down his life. It means to the uttermost, to the depth of his being. He loves you and me. No wonder Paul prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in that love, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is a breath and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And you'll recall how he concluded the 8th chapter, that glorious chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. He says, Paul says, and listen, he went through a lot, didn't he? But yet he declares, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that upper room, God says, I put this, make the statement, I state the depth of my love for you. Amazing. Amazing. Now before the, peace was over, before the peace of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, what, what weight was upon him at that time, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. And he still loves you and me that way. That brings us to the next major movement here about God's love here for you. And that is God magnifies the depth of his son's love for you. God's love for you on display. Now he magnifies the depth of his son's love for you. Look at verses verses 2 and 3. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come forth from God and was going back to God. And we'll stop there for this moment. God, in those two verses, magnifies. He purposely magnifies the depth of his son's love for you, for me. How does he do so? Number one, by contrasting that love with Judas's hatred. By contrasting that love, what was going on that night and going to happen the next day, with Judas's hatred. Verse 2, during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. I mean, we might ask, what was God's purpose in putting that in the text right there? You see, he sets before you and me the blackest backdrop upon which he will magnify the depth of his son's love for you and me. Very shortly, Jesus will get up from that supper and strip himself of his outer tunic and take the place of a slave and wash the filth of the streets off the disciples' feet. He would come to Judas. I want you to be in that upper room. He would come to Judas fully knowing that he had already made plans to betray him, and the God who created the universe would stoop down in humility, in love, and gently begin to wash his feet. One last act that must have struck deep into the heart of Judah's conscience and heart. One last gentle urging, moving, calling to him to turn from his traitorous act and turn in repentance to this one who claimed to be God's son and man's only savior. He would do that to this man who had already purposed to betray him. What a terrible black, dark backdrop. Judas had walked side by side with the Lord for nearly three and one half years. Listen, right with him. He ate with him. He slept along with the other disciples beside him. He was there when Jesus ministered day in and day, hour after hour to all the people and all their needs. Not only physical, but obviously spiritual needs as well. He saw the change it made in the other 11 disciples. He saw the changes it made in all the people that came to him. Those that were outcasts as far as the religious leaders were concerned. He saw that. He saw the incredible miracles this man did. He heard the very words that we read here that came out of the mouth of the Son of God. And yet, he betrays him. What evil, what hatred to turn on him and betray him into the hands of those who had purposed to murder him. And he knew that. But he also does it in a second way. That is, God magnifies the depth of his son's love for you by putting that contrast in this setting there in that upper room. But he does it by a second way, and that is by describing Jesus' sovereignty and the imminent restoration of his glory. He describes his sovereignty in this text and his imminent or soon coming restoration of the glory that was his before he left the glories of heaven. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. I mean, picture yourself at that table 
reclining there, eating this Passover meal with Jesus and those 12 disciples, suddenly, in the middle of eating there, Jesus gets up. Now, he's the center of it all. We know that. He gets up in the middle of the meal, and you watch Jesus as he gets up. He takes off his outer tunic, and he takes a bowl, and he fills it with water. He girds himself with this towel, and then he comes to you. He comes to you. You're there in that upper room. You can't believe what he just did. You've walked him for three and a half years. But he stoops. Your sandals are already removed. You're reclining at the table. He stoops down and he begins to wash your dirty feet. He takes the place of the lowest slaves and he cleans your feet. How does God choose in his inspired written word to describe this one who has so humbled himself, who is washing your dirty feet? What do we read there? The Father has given all things into his hand. That's sovereignty, folks. That's sovereign God. It's all his. All things. This very one created and sustains the entire universe. Oh, how God magnifies the depth of his son's love that he would get up Become, take the place of a slave, a common menial slave, and stoop before you and me and wash our dirty feet. That's our God. That's our Savior. God magnifies the depth of His Son's love for you by contrasting that love with Judas's hatred, murderous heart, And yet humbly he stoops before him and washes and cleans his feet. But he also does that in this second way, describing Jesus' sovereignty and the imminent restoration of his glory. What a contrast. We come next to the next major movement here. God illustrates the depths of his son's Love for you. Now he's going to go a step further. He's going to illustrate the depth of his son's love for you. First, he deli- the, his deliberate act of washing his disciples' feet. It's a deliberate act. I want to read verses 3 through 9, and you follow along if you will. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. I want you to look at his deliberate act of washing his disciples' feet. Now, you need to understand the background and the custom going on here. In the Jewish home back in the first century, in the morning, the household would get up and take a complete bath. Then they would go out and do whatever their errands were. And, of course, you know those were dusty streets. They had all kinds of animals. And during the Passover, you had approximately 2 million people there in that city of Jerusalem. You had all those animals as well, the donkeys, the mules, the horses, the sacrificial animals. And so you can imagine what those streets were like. When you came back in, you didn't stop and take another complete bath. Maybe you should have, but you didn't. But rather, there was a place for you to wash your feet. Usually, there was a slave that was in the household that did that for you. That's the background that we need to see here. It's very important. But there's another part of the story that's important background information as well to Jesus getting up and humbling himself and washing these disciples' feet. And Luke's gospel tells us that part of the background. This was going on at that table where they were eating that Passover meal. Here's what Luke says. There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as to be greatest. And he said to them, he said to them, there at the table, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have Authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Normally, as I said, there would be a slave there in the upper room to wash the dirty feet, but they had to be in private, secrecy. And so that wasn't prepared. There was the basin there, which would be in those rooms, and the towels, but not the servant. The slave was not there. This was a secret meeting. And remember that just a few days earlier, these disciples had watched Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb who had been dead for four days, four nights. I mean, this shook the whole nation. And you can read about that in the Gospels as well. It shook all the people. The religious leaders had a secret meeting and said, he's got to go. We've got to kill him and maybe we've got to kill Lazarus as well. So they had seen this. What's in their mind? He's about to set up the kingdom. He's about to overthrow Rome and establish Israel as a premier nation of the world. That's what's in their minds. And so around the table, they're saying, we got to get ready. we got to be determined that I'm going to be the one that has a place of preeminence, not John or not uh, one of the other disciples. That was what, what was going on. It's interesting that uh, their whole mindset was that Jesus was about to make his move and establish the kingdom, deliver the nation from the Romans. And a lecture that he just gave on being a servant, taking the place of a menial slave even by the Son of God, simply would not penetrate their thick skulls. By the way, he has a lot of things to teach us that won't penetrate our thick skulls either. But what did Jesus did next? Absolutely, I want you to say, it absolutely devastated them. It absolutely devastated them. 
They certainly did not, under any circumstances, were they willing to humble themselves and go and stoop and wash the dirty feet of the other disciples. I mean, they began that meal with their dirty feet in the face of the one next to them because they reclined there. They didn't sit in chairs like we do. But in no way, get this, but in no way could they accept Jesus doing that. Dear ones, this was a lesson they would never forget. I mean, they weren't going to do it, but they could. It was totally incomprehensible for the God of the universe to stoop and begin to take the place of a slave and wash their feet. They could not in any way accept that. It's interesting, and never again would you hear them argue about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. Never again. You read the accounts. Did they argue about that issue? Number two, though, in your outline, his explanation of the central truth depicted in the washing of his disciples' feet. The central truth depicted in the washing of his disciples' feet. As I said... All the disciples were absolutely speechless as they reclined there and Jesus began to wash their dirty feet. That is, until Jesus came to Peter. Verses 6 through 11, So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you Have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands, hands hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. I mean, what an amazing scene. What what an amazing text that's before us here, the scripture. I think the whole room went absolutely silent. The only thing, I mean, they couldn't speak. The only thing they heard was a dripping of the water from that cloth as he put it back in the basin and, and rinsed it out and went to one, washed their feet, one rinsed off all the filth and so forth, and then put it back. I think all they heard was a dripping of that water. But then he comes to Peter. Peter, as usual, finally finds words, doesn't he? But I think as well, he pulled his feet up. Pulled them away from the Lord. And by the way, he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Never shall you wash my feet. And Peter is expressing what was on the heart of all the other disciples as well. It wasn't just him. Peter knew well the condescension that was going on with his Lord who had stooped in order to wash the feet of the disciples' feet here. He knew that he took the form of the lowest menial slave. And I think he undoubtedly remembered the first time they recognized that this man is God. You might remember that. Luke tells you about that. Jesus is walking along and he's giving his discourses and suddenly gets in Peter's boat and he finishes the discourse. And then he says, shove out into the deep. And he says, now let down your net. And Peter says, man, look, we have worked and toiled hard all night and caught nothing. I mean, I'm the fisherman here. Nevertheless, 
At your bidding, I'll do it. He puts that net down or those nets down and immediately they catch such a load of fish that the nets begin to break and they were so heavy, the boats begin to sink as well. And so they call over James and John with their boat and their nets and so forth. And what impact did it have on Peter when he saw that? He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And now before him is Jesus, the Son of God, the God of the universe, stooping and about to wash his dirty feet. It's an amazing setting. But don't miss Jesus' response to Peter, verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Don't miss the pronoun. It's significant. Jesus did not tell Peter that if he did not wash his feet, he would have no part in him. But what? With him. A complete difference there. Peter was already in Christ. He had already received the full, complete bath. And Jesus even tells him so when he says to Peter, verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, because he knew that Judas had not had that complete bath. We're not talking about a ritual of water baptism here, dear ones. We're talking about your faith placed in the Son of God. He even uses two different Greek words for bathe, meaning take a complete bath and wash for the cleansing of the feet. You see, Peter had already received Jesus Christ and had believed in his name. He was already a Christian, even though Jesus had not gone to the cross to provide that salvation, but was going to that next morning. In fact, over in chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus says to the 11 disciples, Judas now is gone. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In other words, he said, do you believe my word? Do you believe I'm the Son of God? Do you believe I came to bear your sins and your deserved punishment? And they did believe that, and therefore he says, you're already clean. You are saved. You have eternal life. I love Peter's response to the Lord. Though you can't help but love this guy, would that you and I would have that same kind of a heart. Would that we'd have that same kind of heart. Verse 9, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. What an immediate turnabout. What an immediate contrast from absolutely insisting you will never wash my feet to man, give me the whole thing. This guy loved the Lord. He wanted to have part with him. He wanted that precious fellowship with him. And that's what this communion is all about, by the way. We don't gain merit by taking these elements. We do it in remembrance what he's done for us, that we can have that precious fellowship knowing that we have had the clean bath. We have put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are redeemed. We have eternal life. You can't but love him. And say, God, give me that same kind of a heart. What is the central truth that's depicted in Jesus washing his disciples' feet and his words to them then? First, don't miss this. First, it is seen in Jesus' words to Peter in verse 7. Look at verse 7. First, it's seen there. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Now listen to me. 
Think this through with me. They were absolutely dumbfounded and speechless seeing him humble himself in that manner and stoop and do the work of a lowly, menial slave. They couldn't believe what they were seeing and experiencing. The God of the universe, their Messiah, humbling himself in such a manner. But Jesus was about to do something far more stupendous. Far more humbling on the very next day, and they in no way were ready for that. So this was a beginning for them to somehow enter in the comprehension of the humility he was about to go through. The washing of the feet was only the beginning. What I do to you, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. It would not be until three days later that they would begin to understand when he was raised up from the dead and appeared to them. But let me explain, expand that application though for you and me. Is it not true that he takes you down paths you don't understand? And you want him to explain, and he chooses, he chooses not to explain to you. He says what? Just trust me. Even if I choose not to explain to you why I allow an 18-year-old who belongs to me to be murdered, her life cut short. Will you trust me? And he takes you and me down those paths. Why? Because the greatest treasure to him is what? First Peter tells you, you're my faith. Our faith. That we will hang on and trust him. And so he's about to go through something that they're not going to understand. It's going to blow their minds the next day. And so he begins to prepare them for that. But secondly, he tells them, that 11 of them have been completely washed already and never need be washed again. Did you get that? If you've truly been washed, if you've had the full bath, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to come down the aisle and do it again and again and again and again. It's a once for all thing. If you've truly received Him as your Lord and Savior and truly believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what did God declare to you? Thou shalt be saved. And that means the moment you put your faith in Him. The same thing Jesus declared to the eleven disciples. He who has bathed is completely clean. Once for all act, God declares to you this, thou shalt be saved. I love John 5, 24. Jesus said to you who have placed your faith in him to save you, you have already eternal life. When does eternal life begin? The moment you get saved. What is eternal life? It's forever. And you have would do not come into judgment, but have already passed out of death into life. John 5, 24. Tremendous promise. What a blessing. 1 John 1, seven says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from... Can you think, give me the next word? All sin. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews 10, verses 10 and 14. By this will we have been sanctified. It's a past since we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I love that. No other sacrifice is needed. No coming back over and over to get saved over and over again. And then we go on to verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Wow. Me the sinner. 
But by one offering, he has perfected Bill Walker for all time. And may I add, for all eternity as well. And the same is true if you put your faith in him. That's what he was expressing in that upper room. Where he said, you don't need the whole bath. You've already had that complete bath. You put your faith in me. But there was one who was not cleansed from all his sin by the blood of Jesus. Verse 11, he tells you that, does he not? For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. May I say that? Today, churches around America and around the world are filled with people who still are not clean. They're trusting the fact that, I mean, they're glad to be in church. They're glad to, maybe they're dependent on the church and sacraments. Maybe it's baptism. It's other things. And uh, they may enjoy whatever in church, but they still have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. They still are not clean. I mean, how can you be that close to Jesus and not be saved? Thirdly, even those disciples who had received the complete bath, being cleansed from all their sins by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, still had need for daily cleansing, washing of their dirty feet. And that is the daily application of that precious verse, 1 John 1, nine. Can you say it with me? Together, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that last part because you know why? We do our best to confess what we know is sin, and there's a lot that we can confess, but there's things we haven't a clue that sin is still in us, that we still think the wrong thoughts, things, sins of omission, sins of commission. He said, but yes, when you come to me and I'm there and I've got your feet in my hands and I'm washing them and you're saying, oh Lord, search me, oh God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way. I mean, lead me in the everlasting way. He said, guess what? I'm forgiving you of all those sins. Not so that I can be, listen, in Christ Having put my faith in Him, I've already had the complete bath. I'm already in Him. I already possess eternal life. But that I might be with Him. Have a part with Him. That's fellowship. That's walking hand in hand with the Lord and Savior. Would we be like Peter say, then Lord, just give me the whole thing. He says, you don't need that. Just confess your sins. Walk in fellowship with me. This whole scene with Jesus washing his disciples' dirty feet and his words to them remind me of Aaron and his son. Remember the tabernacle was set up and the first thing they did, they're going to put these clothing on Aaron and his sons, his four sons. First thing they did was give them a complete bath. The next thing that happened is Moses went to the brazen altar. And there he had to sacrifice those bulls and those lambs and those rams for their sins. That speaks, that is a picture of Jesus going to the cross that we can have that complete bath and be forgiven and have eternal life. But then between that brazen altar, after they had been cleansed and put on the garments and the sacrifice had been made, there was a brazen altar and next to it was the laver that was between the brazen altar and the holy place and the holy of holies. And they had to stop every morning and every evening at the brazen altar and what? I'm not brazen, the laver, the laver. And wash their hands and their feet 
before they can minister to the Lord. Isn't that great? What a picture of what we're going to do here in a moment. You say, wash feet? No, no, we're not going to do that. But take these elements and say, Lord, my feet are in your hands. I want you to examine me, search my heart, know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. What a precious thought we have there. Number three, his example is to be emulated by his disciples. His example is to be emulated by his disciples. I'm going to read now the rest of that, 12 through 17. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent, and that's the word apostolos, by the way, and they're going to be sent, with not, is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And then this beatitude, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not think that Jesus was giving another ordinance to the apostles and the church. We have the ordinance of baptism. When they put, you put your faith in Jesus, we baptize you. We have the ordinance of do this in remembrance of me, the communion table, the Lord's table. But I don't think he said, I'm giving you now the ordinance of washing each other's feet. Now, some churches do that. It can be a beautiful thing. But back in the first century, there was a real need for that. I mean, I just talked about what that was like. Not so much here in this country, maybe in other countries there are. What then did Jesus mean in verses 14 and 15? If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Don't miss it. Think this through. Listen carefully and consider it carefully. Genuine love manifests itself when you humble yourself and serve others no matter how lowly and demeaning that service might be. I want to say that again. Genuine love, agape love, manifests itself when you, when I, humble ourselves and serve others no matter how lowly and demeaning that service might be. It might be washing somebody's feet. It might be going to somebody that's down and out that you don't want to spend any time whatsoever with. It can be any of a number of things that God says, I want you to humble yourself and do what I have set before you as an example. Oh, that opens up all kinds of opportunities, does it not? But what did he say would happen as a result of this? Look at verses 34 and 35. He said to his disciples, a new commandment I give you that you what? Love one another. In what way? Like I just loved you. To humble yourself, to be in the position of a slave, and to love and meet the needs, whatever they might be, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And what? He didn't say evangelism, although it's important. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have 
love one for another. That's the impact by way of illustration or application that God makes to you. So God illustrates the depth of his son's love for you. He not only stooped and took the form of a slave and washed his disciples' dirty feet, he stooped so far down that he took up his cross, bore it to Calvary, took all your and my sin, all heaped upon him, and knowing full well that God was then going to pour out his fiery wrath and judgment upon him and cut him off from the precious fellowship that he had had throughout all eternity past. This ordinance pictures the depth of God's love for you and for me. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being able to corporately gather here this morning. Thank you for the communion service we're about to enter into, Father. And you said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I wonder how many times through the day, Lord, we've been that way. Say, stop. Get back into fellowship. Let me put my hands upon your feet and wash them. Confess our sin. For you'd be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteous. Father, I thank you that you declared to Peter, he's already in Christ, but he would have no part with Christ if he did not allow you to wash his feet daily. Is that not true of us? May we have a heart like him, then Lord, I want a part with you. I want fellowship with you. I want to know the love and the outpouring of your spirit in my life. I want your word to speak to my heart and just bless me and enrich me that I may know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings. And then therefore search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. O Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit of God, see if there be some wicked way in me. And may we live out your example, Lord Jesus Christ, humble ourselves and be ready to do what menial service you might place before us, no matter how difficult that might be, to say, I'll do it in love for my brother and sister, that all people might know that you are my disciples. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.